Hi, guys. Today, I have a sugar sweet guest with me. Clint, please introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, pleasure to be here today. My name is Clint Oram. I'm a co-founder of Sugar CRM, and I run marketing here for the company. Great. Tell us a little bit about Sugar CRM. So what are you actually doing? Sugar CRM is a customer relationship management company. We compete against Microsoft and Salesforce every day. We're the up-and-comer in the marketplace, disrupting the way companies and, more importantly, customer-facing business professionals leverage CRM technology to build better relationships with their customers. Great. I mean, everybody knows that you need to convince the customers to buy with you, so therefore you need some kind of CRM tool set. Great. Let's talk about the beginnings of Sugar CRM. So let's go back like nine or 10 years. What was it like? How did you feel when you started the company? Well, uh, it's been more than nine or 10 years. It's now <laughs> been 13 years and going into 14 years. So it's, it's been a, uh, certainly a very exciting journey and, and a big part of my life now. Um, as you know, as I look back in 2004, in January of 2004, A group of us that were working together at another CRM company, well, we saw the opportunity to build a different type of CRM company. Our, our vision all along has been that legacy customer relationship management software solutions have been very focused on helping managers manage their salespeople, their, their customer service people, and they haven't actually been focused on helping customer-facing professionals build a relationship with the customers. And it, and that's the irony of the CRM industry. It, it's called customer relationship management. It's not called workforce management. And, and that was the opportunity that we saw. Uh, There's a lot of changes in the marketplace happening around subscription business models, around open source, around software as a service. And, and we grabbed a hold of all of those business model shifts and turn them into a company that's focused on helping sellers sell and customer service agents deliver extraordinary customer service. And so that was, that was our vision 13, 14 years ago. And when you moved from being an employee to starting your own company, how did you feel? So after day one, you've left the other company, how did you feel? Have you been afraid? Uh, what could happen? Or what was your feeling like? Tell us. Yeah, you know, that, that's, a, that's an interesting journey in itself because you described it as going from an employee to being an owner. And I would describe the, the next step in there is to realize that, that you're, you're an employee again because at the end of the day, you always have a boss. Yes. And, and my boss is my customer. And, right. uh, and I, you know, I don't have anywhere near as unilateral freedom to just do whatever I want to do because I have to make my customers successful. I have to make them happy. And because if they aren't happy and successful, they don't pay me money and I can't, uh, I can't do payroll, right? But behind that journey and, and the thought process is there, you know, I think the hardest part of starting a company was to have the, the courage to leave a good job. I was, uh, I was doing very well at my uh, previous company. I had a great career path ahead of me. I had a lot of respect from my management team. And, and so I was in a good spot. In fact, uh, as I told my family that I was getting ready to do this, you know, I had some family members saying, that's awesome. That's great. Starting your own thing. I'm so proud of you. And I had other family members who said, you're crazy. Why would you leave a great job 
and have no salary and take all that risk. And so all those factor in there together. But I, I think it probably the single hardest thing about uh, getting sugar started was was finding that courage to go do it. Yeah. And I mean, for example, when I started companies, I was always thinking about what is the worst thing that could happen to me. So after like six, 12, 24 months in the game, what was your thought process? Because I know you have some kind of interesting first 12 months. Yeah, you know, for us, the, the three of us that started the company together, there was there was John Roberts, Jacob Taylor and myself. And the three of us were all we were all peers at um, a previous CRM company called Epiphany. And we all worked together on a day to day basis and we we're all married and, and two of us had young children. So my son was two years old. John's son was two years old. Uh, Jacob's wife was pregnant. And so um, there was a lot of family commitments going on. But but at the same time, all of our wives were working. And, and so we had a uh, from a family perspective, each one of us had a guaranteed income from the perspective of our wives working, we, we had insurance, we could, we could uh, uh, pay for insurance, things like that through our wives. And, and we made an agreement. We said, uh, we are giving ourselves one year, no salary expectations. And at the end of 12 months, we'll sit down and reevaluate where we're at. But in that first year, we're not going to worry about if we're making money or not. We're just going to focus on building a, a, an awesome idea and get things going. But to be honest, you know, to be really frank here, it went much faster than, than we ever thought. We had a bit of a storybook beginning. We just to kind of take you through 2004, which is a year that I'll remember forever. It was uh, in January of 2004, actually January 18th, 2004, which is just one week from now yeah. that John and I went out to lunch at a Thai restaurant and, and he threw out the idea about starting a CRM company and asked me if I was interested in working with it on it with him. And I said, yes, absolutely. And we started shaping the idea and we knew we needed a, an architect. I'm a developer myself, but I'm much more of a front end user experience developer. And we needed a core backend architect. And so we went to Jacob, who was uh, one of our colleagues, uh, a couple months later after we had started shaping the idea. And we recruited him on board. And so it was in March that the three of us came together. And at the end of March, we pitched our idea to a VC, a venture capitalist that we knew, to see if she thought it was interesting. And, and she gave us some very positive feedback, which <laughs> we then learned later all VCs give you very nice <laughs> They all say that's a very interesting idea. Yeah. <laughs> but, but if they don't it, invest, then it's not really what they say. True. But, but we, we took her, her positive words as yeah. complete affirmation that we're on board and we quit our jobs yeah. based upon what she said. And we, we went off and we started the company and, and we ended up learning later that she was just saying nice words to us because she knew us. So that was, <laughs> that was kind of a, a funny point is we, we took that, that moment of, Hey, you guys have a great idea. I, I think you should keep working on it. And we, we took that as the justification back to our wives and our family. That, hey, a VC says we got a great <laughs> idea. So we're going to go do it. Yeah. So it was in, in April 2004 that we started working full time on the idea. We had an alpha version of the product out in the marketplace in May. In June, a different VC found us and became interested in us and, and gave us our first $2 million in June of 2004. By August, we had 10 employees. By October, we had our first customer on board. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the year, 
we had done $250,000 in revenue. And that was from a, a, a lunch in January where we said, hey, let's go do this to December. At that point, we had 20 employees, $2 million in the bank, and our first revenue on board. That was an exciting year, no doubt about it. Great stuff. If I remember correctly, that you used a specific marketing tactic in order to attract customers. Can you explain this a little bit? Absolutely. So open source was a big thing in 2004. And if you were in the market in 2004 doing software, you'll remember some major market forces happening. So this was, we were in the dot-com hangover, right? So yeah. the dot-com boom in 1997, 98, 99 generated a, a huge amount of venture capital investment into the software world. You had uh, uh, companies like pets.com, which was a colossal, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, But yeah. you had Amazon, which was a huge success. Uh, you had Google, which was a huge success. But out of that came the dot-com collapse in 2000, where a lot of these, just so many of these ideas were, were vaporware. And, and what you had was well-funded startups with salespeople driving around in their BMWs, showing up and, and selling dreams for, for seven figures, for millions of dollars, and companies got vaporware. And so there was a lot of frustration in that dot-com hangover, that 2000 to 2004 period of enterprise software companies selling vaporware. And so the backlash, the response to that was companies wanted to have more confidence that software vendors were committed to their success. And so out of that came subscription billing. You got to earn a customer every year, right? Out of that came commercial open source, which is where we focused, right? Which was the whole idea of try before you buy. Also out of that was the starting of the idea of software as a service that the vendor in many cases can run the software more efficiently than you can run it yourself. So these are all the ideas that started with and, and we took advantage of all three, but our focus was open source, was building a community around us. And the core idea there was through a freemium model and building a community of enthusiastic and committed developers, we could take our ideas to market and gain traction in a completely new and different way. And we were just, well, frankly, extremely successful at it. We have become the the leader in open source CRM. Our business model has shifted since then. We're not focused on open source the way we were in the past, but it was a fantastic way to get us started back in 2004 because the market was was looking for an open source CRM leader. And we jumped on that opportunity before anybody else did. And we, we out executed our competition. So awesome, Clint, to hear that. So when I'm looking at business models, one thing that I'm always very much interested in is What is your sustainable competitive advantage over others? So why should customers use Sugar CRM? And what dimensions are you trying to be the best at? You know, that's an excellent question there. So here, here's the, the thing that I've learned over 13 years. Technology changes, and you need to be taking advantage of the most modern technology all the time. So for the first era of Sugar Serum, our advantage was open source. We were giving away an incredibly robust piece of enterprise software that just outclassed our competition and, and we were ahead of the game out there. But as time moved forward, what we found was companies became less interested in open source 
and also just became less interested in how the software was deployed. And what I mean by that was the things that were driving companies to look for open source and software as a service stopped becoming the focus of a buying decision. And, and where it really started shifting towards was what do you do with the software? And is it, is it helping my people be more effective? And through that time, we had uh, mobile technology really become a focus. We've had social technology really become a focus. And we've had, today, it's predictive analytics. It's machine learning is, is the focus. So my point there is technology shifts over time. And as you, you reach a point as a startup where your or as a company as a whole, where you move past being a startup, where you have a, a unique technology advantage by being a first mover around a particular piece of technology, which we've done multiple times now, and you end up being known in the marketplace for being an expert in the business problems that you solve. And so that's where, where our customers come to us. Our customers come to us because we're experts in CRM. All we do is CRM. Our entire focus as a company is CRM. If you look at Salesforce.com, they do all kinds of things. They do platform as a service. They do collaboration software. They do social media monitoring. Uh, they're doing e-commerce. They're, they're doing all kinds of things above and beyond customer relationship management. Microsoft, of course, does, well, they do a lot of things, right? In fact, <laughs> right now, Microsoft is trying to buy CRM leadership by giving away their software for free. Uh. And and it's interesting to watch that play out because that that is working for some companies, but other companies don't want that approach. And, and really what we're seeing in there is, is companies that don't consider CRM to be their competitive advantage. In other words, they aren't thinking about their customer experience as a unique competitive advantage, and they're just buying CRM technology as a commodity. They're shifting over to Microsoft right now, and and that's putting, frankly, in the marketplace, that's putting some pressure on on both Salesforce and Sugar. But those companies that look to their the way they interact with their customers, their customer experience as a as a unique differentiator for them, they're investing more than ever with us. And so, so we're riding through this shift in the marketplace right now by focusing on delivering CRM expertise. And that's what we do best. And that's that's our competitive advantage. And that comes both from a technology perspective, but also from the expertise within the company, the the people that work at Sugar CRM. They're CRM experts and our customers come to us for that expertise. So if Microsoft is basically pitching on a cost dimension to the customers, hey guys, we are free, buy us, get us. Now the question to you would be, how do you pitch value to your customers in order so that they select value over cost? You know, the interesting thing in there, of course, is I know that story well, right, Martin? I, I, I know the free story well. I, I gave away my software for the first 10 years of the company. I gave away a version of my software for free. Yeah. And what I learned within my own business is that when it comes to strategic software, software that's incredibly important to how you grow as a company, companies value what they pay for. And if they're paying nothing for it, then they don't value it and they don't see it as a strategic piece of their of their business. And that's what we saw and why we ultimately started moving away from the freemium model. And we started uh, putting all of our attention on a commercial model is because the companies that really valued our software the most, they wanted to pay for it. They They, they wanted to feel like they were a customer as opposed to somebody who had just downloaded free software. 
So I, I, I firmly believe Microsoft is going to learn that all they're doing is collecting the cheapest customers who don't want to pay anything anyways. And, and I wish them good luck. Uh, we're focusing on customers, companies that really value the quality of their customer experience. And there's a there's a partnership between us. There's a give and a get that goes both directions that makes it a valuable partnership for us on both cases. And uh, I'm very comfortable with where we're going to land in the future. We're going to be a stronger and more valuable company as a result of what Microsoft is doing in the marketplace today. Great. Clint, over the last 13, 14 years, what have been your major top two or three learnings that you could share with other first-time entrepreneurs? Yeah, that, that's a great question there. You know, I come from a family of entrepreneurs on one side. So my, in my dad's family, every generation back, going back, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, they were all entrepreneurs building their own businesses. In fact, my dad built a software business in the early 80s that was somewhat similar in nature to what I'm doing here at Sugar about connecting people together and helping them collaborate and work together more effectively. It was focused in a different industry, focused on uh, the media industry. And I learned a lot watching my dad build his company in Sacramento, California, where I grew up back in the 1980s when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And this was, you know, this is when technology was really hitting stride. There was, there was the TRS-80, there was personal computers. When I was a 10-year-old kid, the very first video games were coming out and I was in the, in the video game parlor playing Pac-Man and, and <laughs> all that. So it was a fun, exciting time. It was the beginning of, of the technology industry the way we know it today. And I had the opportunity to watch my dad build that company. And there's some things I watched him do well and, I, and some things that I think he, uh, you know, he made some mistakes on. And, and one of those was he had a hard time delegating decision making. He had a hard time releasing power, if you will, to the people around him. And, and he, he put himself in the center of all the decision making. And the company just couldn't scale. His company couldn't scale because he had to be the center of all the decision making. And so for me, when I started Sugar, I took that lesson to heart. And I think one of the things I've done really well here at Sugar CRM is hire people that are smarter than me and give them the authority to run their parts of the business and collaborate with them, but stand back and give them authority and accountability. And, and that's something that I think many, many, many entrepreneurs have a hard time appreciating that, understanding that. Because, you know, they've got a vision and they want to execute on that vision. And it's easier to execute on the vision in the short term if you just do it yourself. Yeah. Uh, but in the long term, if people don't know what you want them to do when you leave the room, if they don't feel like they can get things done when you leave the room, then you can never leave the room. <laughs> and that's, that's hard to build a company. So that's one lesson learned. Another lesson learned, I think, in there is... I watch a lot of young entrepreneurs, early entrepreneurs, spend almost too much time trying to be clever in, in making business decisions and being afraid to make a decision in some key area of, for instance, financing or customer contracts, you know, in business relationships as a whole. And I watch entrepreneurs be too clever for their own good and they assume that the person on the other side of the table is being a Machiavelli. Right. Mm -hmm. And what I find is, is if you build a relationship of trust, if you have confidence in your ability to deal with any unforeseen negative 
circumstances in the future, if you have confidence in yourself, if you have trust in the people that you do business with, you end up shaping your own reality. You, you get what you create. So if you if you believe that everybody else is going to take advantage of you, then they, they probably will take advantage of you. If you believe that your business partners, your vendors, your suppliers, your customers, your investors, if you believe that they're going to be focused on success, then, then they will be focused on success. And so I think that's a very important lesson for every entrepreneur to think about. The third lesson that I would talk about is how to actually execute strategic planning. Uh, I put a lot of effort into the, the actual mechanics of strategic planning and how to build a business plan and share a business plan with your investors and your customers and your, your employees. And that's an area that I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't know where to get started with. And they've got a very clear idea in their head. But, but being able to write that idea down in a way that uh, translates into strategy, culture, and tactics within the company is, is an area that I find a lot of entrepreneurs are challenged with. So, so those are my thoughts in there. Uh, you know, hire people smarter than you. Be willing to trust the people around you and put time in writing down your thoughts so that your strategies, so that people know what to do when you're not in the room. Yeah, that, that's fine. Yeah. And I mean, the last of a point of putting have, having an actionable plan on executing your strategy so that you're reaching your vision is from my point of view very closely related to delegating power because if your vision is only in your head nobody knows uh, what he should be striving for and what he should be executing basically that's that's exactly the case you know when 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 I started the company back in 2004 our first business partner that we recruited was Josh Stein from DFJ Venture Capital. He was the venture capitalist that invested in sugar mm -hmm. and, you know, learned a lot from him over the past decade plus. He's become a good friend. He's become a mentor. Uh, we've learned, I think, a lot from each other. And he said something that was very insightful to me once. He said that the, the job of a CEO is to have a vision, to hire great people and to find the money to grow. Right. That's what you do as a CEO. That's what you do as a leader. You, you have the vision, you hire great people and you get the resources to give to those people. And that's, that's what I think any CEO, any entrepreneur needs to be thinking about because, and what you end up finding is a lot of entrepreneurs, they want to do the job, right? They want to do everybody's job. They want to having fun building the company and they want to make all the decisions and they, and they're, almost uh, uncomfortable hiring other people because because that person may not have the same vision that you have and you you end up hiring b players instead of a players and then you don't take the time to write your ideas down and you end up you end up spending your energy doing other things you spend your energy doing what the company has been built to do as opposed to focusing on having that vision, articulating that vision, hiring great people and finding in the capital to grow the company. And that, that's what an entrepreneur really needs to be thinking about the end days, those three things. Great stuff. Clint, thank you so much for your insights and sharing your knowledge. My pleasure. It was great talking to you today.